Lord, you are the one who is worthy. You're the one that John saw who was able to open the scroll. Lord, you are the one who has gone to prepare a place for us. That where you are, we will be also. You've created mansions for us. You've given us a place to live for eternity. Lord, we didn't deserve it. It was by your mercy that you saved us. It was nothing that we have done. And because of that mercy, you died on a cross for us. You didn't give us what I deserved. Because of that grace. Oh, what a God we serve. Oh, what a God we worship. There was no one like you, Jehovah. No one. May our prayers, may our praise, may our thoughts bring you happiness this morning for what you've heard. May our hearts bleed with gratitude for what you have done. You are an amazing God, and we love you. And we pray for Pastor Rick as he speaks this morning. May you use the words, may the Holy Spirit use his words to speak to us so that we can know you better. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'm so glad you joined us today. Our Sermon on the Mount series continues to spark discussions. Jesus is clarifying what walking with the king actually looks like. So when Jesus talks about accountability or evangelism or prayer, some of us get nervous which actually shows, in my opinion, how effective the enemy really has been. Instead of seeing the blessings of submitting to our good, good Father, we fear obedience at times, thinking that listening to God will diminish our happiness or fulfillment. Today, Jesus summarizes his sermon in one verse. And then he demands a verdict. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace in our life. As we worship you, as we adore you, as we try in some feeble way to give you 
what you deserve. Lord, you're an awesome God. You're a big God. You're a gracious God. You're just. You're merciful. We love you. Who wouldn't want a relationship with a person like you? Who wouldn't want to bow down just overwhelmed by your grace and your love for each one of us? But God, there are times in our lives where we get blinded. Maybe our schedules, maybe our busyness, maybe some pressures. But we would ask that you would Open our eyes today that you would be glorified, that, that you would help us see the blessing of listening to you in everything and all that you say. I pray, Father, for fellow churches, for sister churches who are in this area, but really for churches all over, not only this country, but our world. I pray, Father, for Grace Point and for Meadowland and for Connection. These are all converged churches. And, Father, we pray for those pastors and we pray for those flocks that they would be salt and light. Lord, we look around in our world and we get sad. We ask today, Father, that you would... Be especially with the church in Russia. I, I pray, dear God, that, that you would work in spite of the turmoil that continually descends upon that country. There's so many things that are going on, and we would ask God that you would strengthen and that the gospel would continue to go forth. Lord, I pray for all the ministries downstairs, for all the teachers, for those who are sharing who you are with our kids. I pray, Father, that they would see you clearly and respond early. As we pray for all the ministries that happen in our church, inside these walls, outside these walls. Lord, we have Vacation Bible School coming up. And we would ask again that you would bring a multitude of kids, that you would supply all the workers, that there would be great joy as we proclaim the gospel, your life-changing news. We love you, Lord, and, and we look forward to what you're going to teach us today. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you open up your Bibles or your flat screens to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12? Matthew 7, verse 12. I just want to warn you before I read it, it's really familiar. Which means this it's familiar for a good reason. It's Jesus' words, but it's something that we probably have heard since we've been little children. But let's listen to Jesus one more time. Chapter 7, verse 12. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. 
This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Jesus' words are often referred to as the golden rule. Act toward others the way that you would like them to act to you. Speak about others the way that you would like them to speak about you. Jesus said this is the essence of all you've been taught in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament, in the prophets. All of God's laws have pointed toward loving behavior toward others. And as we read, especially in the Older Testament, we focus on the Israelites, we see that when God's people obeyed, when God's people listened, when God's people applied what God had told them to do, their community flourished. In the Newer Testament, Paul himself, a little bit later on, emphasizes Jesus' very words in Romans 13 and in Galatians 5. Treat others the way I would like to be treated. Wow, that sounds easy, doesn't it? And, and sometimes we're even really, really good at it for a while. But the challenge comes in actually doing. And try to imagine, if you would, if this principle actually played out in our whole world. There would be no slavery or trafficking. There would be no war, no starvation, no violence, no abuse, no homelessness, no orphans, no, refu- uh, no revenge, no lying, no robbing, no demeaning or disrespectful remarks, no lack of patience, no cheating. And, and we all think, whoa, that would be great. But realistically, much of our world isn't following Jesus or listening to Jesus or part of God's family. And for this to happen, well, it's just basically not. But how about if treating others in a way you wish you were treated were to happen in our church or under our roof? or in our marriage. It might look something like, well, Paul would describe in Ephesians chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapter 6, or maybe in Philippians chapter 2. But he says a lot of the same things in Colossians chapter 3, and I'd like you to turn there with me if you would. Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. This is where Paul describes what a family member looks like when he or she walks with God. Let me read. Verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Talking to believers, he says, you must clothe yourself. You must put on. This is critical with tender-hearted Mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone, anyone, anyone who offends you. 
Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, even though this was all good, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Don't you just love to hang around people who are kind, merciful, humble, gentle, and patient? I mean, that would be amazing. And you know what's true is as I described some of that list or as we read that in the scriptures, you say, you know what? When people act like that, they really stick out. In other words, the majority of our worlds are pretty selfish. We look after our own interests. We make sure again that our needs are met. So when anybody, anybody kind of does what Jesus says, people scratch their heads. They stick out. Can you imagine, again, living with folks who make allowance for your faults? I'm pretty sure we all screw up, right? Wouldn't it be nice for someone not to nail us all the time. Or, or people who forgive your, off, your offenses. People who love you, sacrificially giving up their selfish ways in order to serve you. Now, some of this is happening. I, I, I believe that. But what would happen if we all listened to Jesus. If we actually all heard what Jesus was saying and committed through the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. You see, I think listening to Jesus is challenging most of the time. We have a tendency, whenever we read Scripture or we hear a message to think about how those scriptures would benefit Jim or John. Like, are you kidding me? My wife is working down in children's ministry today. She really needs to hear this message. Or put it out there. Oh, whoa, my sister. Oh, man, I, I can't wait. I'm going to send her the podcast. This gal needs this scripture. And you know what I found is that every time God's word is opened, every time I read it, every time I hear it, the first question I need to ask myself is, God, what are you teaching me? It's so hard, especially in small groups, as you gather around, as you open up the scripture, whether you're in the curriculum or whether you're in the, in the Bible itself, and then all of a sudden the small groups start talking immediately about the problems in the world, or my neighbor does this, or my boss does. For me, as one of the small group leaders here, I continually try to corral that. 
Oh, okay. But what is God saying to you? What are you needing to change? What is it that God is saying, turn the corner? You see, really, if we all listened, people would be talking with rather than about others. We would focus on encouraging words and speaking the truth in love. No one would be shunned or avoided, and no one would be looked down upon or demeaned. That's why in many ways, as we read about the church, the functioning church, the church that comes underneath the headship of Jesus, as they come together and they listen, it should be the best and the greatest place on the planet. It it should. People actually should be lining up to go in and to have fellowship. Maybe we should even start selling tickets because there would be nothing like that anywhere. Now, as I said, it does happen. And and people are drawn to anyone who walks with God. So Jesus teaches what this looks like as the Spirit empowers his family, his kids, so that he can change us from the inside, we can treat other people differently, and we can begin to imitate God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what happens when Paul says you become a new creation as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have a new capacity to treat and to live and to love. Impossible without the Holy Spirit living in you. There's joy. There's happiness. People know how to deal with conflict. People know how to deal with Well, when things don't go well, it is amazing. In many ways, if you look at this whole sermon, this is Christ's main point. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It summarizes actually what Jesus has been talking about since chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he requires that his disciples do no less. When Jesus sums up the law, as he did in verse 12, which is loving one's neighbor or doing for others whatever one would like them to do to him, It's not a higher law. It doesn't replace the Torah, but it's the true goal of the law, the Torah, of all of the scriptures. Jesus is saying that his followers are selfless and serve others for the sake of the one being served. But they also serve in a way that they would like to be served whether it is reciprocal or not. 
Jesus is literally asking us to do something impossible for self-focused people, for selfish people, for people without the Spirit. We need the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to treat others in a way we would like to be treated. Or or I can say it a different way, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we will continue to focus on us, not others. So maybe you have some questions. You, You are walking with God and you're struggling. How do I treat Jim or Joan or whoever you fill it in? Ask the question. What would I want? How would I like to be treated? And then do it to anyone and everyone. Oh. Realistically, some air gets let out of your tires. Rick, if, if I listen to that, If I really do that, my needs will never be met. No one will care for me. I'll always be giving. It's going to be a raw deal. I think that's the enemy talking, to be quite honest. Because Jesus said, listen to me. No matter how hard it is, because it is the way to life. In fact, let's look back at our scriptures. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verses, or at verse 13, and I'm going to read 13 and 14. It's really good right now when I open my Bible, it just opens to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So that's kind of fun. Jesus says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Jesus had been talking about the blessings and the challenges of being his disciple. He has been describing how a kingdom patriot, how an obedient disciple of Jesus lives. So at this time, it seems logical to me that Jesus wouldn't leave the sermon until he would focus on the way in, how to take advantage of the kingdom citizenship. Jesus is actually asking for a decision. Do you want to become a citizen of God's kingdom and inherit eternal life? Or do you want to remain a citizen of this fallen world and receive damnation? The way to life is on God's terms alone. The way to damnation happens when everyone else makes the terms. You can enter God's kingdom one way through a narrow gate. Jesus himself told his disciples in John chapter 10 that he was the gate. 
So enter the narrow gate. There is only one way. You can't enter a bunch of different ways. You enter into a relationship by faith with Jesus, who really is the King and the Lord, who saves and rules. There are not a whole lot of ways into the kingdom. There are all kinds of people and all kinds of faiths that say, hey, if you or when you or please do. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago because each one of us were in a desperate strait. We were sinful. We were separated from God. And we needed a Savior. And he showed us what love is. And he left the throne room, came down to this planet, stretched his arms out, shed his blood, and said, I will pay the debt for everyone and their sin. I will appease God's wrath on their behalf. But they're going to have to enter the narrow gates. They're going to have to trust me. Jesus gave the same message often throughout the Gospels. This was not something new. But Jesus says the gateway to life is narrow, and few find it. I think there are a few reasons why few people find it or why few people go through it. First of all, I think the enemy, and I've mentioned the enemy a few times today, have, the enemy has deceived us about God and the kingdom. Realistically, we are not drawn to God because God is this horrible God. If you listen to God or obey God, you will not have any fun. And you can go through a bunch of other types of lies But realistically, if we listen to that image rather than understand who God is, we'll be repelled from it. And the enemy's done a good job. Secondly, especially here in the western part of the world, pride gets involved. We can't accept gifts. Isn't it hard for many of us to accept a gift, no matter what it is. Now, some, it's real easy. I get it. But for some, oh, no, no. I mean, if you give me this money, it means I can't make enough. If you give me this vehicle, it means I'm poor at choosing cars. If you give me another shirt, it means, like, I'm dressing poorly. And so we have all of these different types of scenarios that that we work on, but oftentimes we can't accept the gift because of our pride and the gift of eternal life and a relationship with God. No, 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 no. I must and better work for it. Or we just have a poor or blurred view of God. We do. Worship time or singing time is just a filler in some ways. We're not seeing his majesty. We're not seeing all that he's done in his sacrifice and his great love. 
as we worship, there's times that tears will fall. There's times that you fall on your knees. And a holy and a precious and a, and a wonderful God. And, and then you begin to understand how grace works. And you get choked up when you talk about Jesus dying in your place. And his mercy that he's given us. And, and the Almighty wants to have a relationship with us and walk with us. And guide us and be yoked up together and tell us the pace we ought to go and the direction we ought to go. Are you kidding me? God, that's you? And there are times we just so casual. Oh, I know about God. Hey, he loved us. But one of the things I find out is I worship, as I read about God, if there are times when it just becomes facts, there aren't any more tears, I'm not getting choked up anymore, I think I might be taking who God is pretty casually. And the enemy loves it, loves it deceiving us over and over and over again. You see, following Jesus is demanding, and it starts with being obedient. And the truth is, nobody likes to submit. Especially listen to a six- or seven-year-old. I can't wait till I grow up, and I don't have to listen to anybody. And you pat, you know the little one on its back, give him a hug and say, that ain't ever going to happen. Just so you know. All right. Oh, yeah, what I, you know, and, and so on. So it starts from a really young age. And, and as we grow up older, it doesn't get easier unless you fall in love and understand how amazing and wonderful your God is, how you can trust him with everything. And even when he asks you to do things that doesn't make sense, and that doesn't seem like it's going to work out. Even this whole thing. But God says, oh, trust me, Rick. Trust me. Do, do you understand what I have for you? Do you understand what I'm offering you? Do you understand the blessings of just walking with me and listening to me? So I think Jesus is sharing with us that his ways are demanding. His sermon paints a picture. It describes how kingdom patriots are to live and then encourages them to follow him on the adventure. A relationship with the king means you need to follow the king, obeying our Lord, even if it doesn't make sense. Jesus says over and over again that a relationship with him, with God his Father, is the only source of abundant living. The only. Now, being a disciple begins with a relationship, and it grows as you obey and as your vision of our good, good Father becomes clearer. You know, Israel knew this well. You can read all the way through the Older Testament. 
But starting with Moses and just going through the prophets, Israel, I love you. Would you listen to me? And if you do, you are going to enjoy the adventure. But we read chapter after chapter, page after page, book after book. Okay, they would walk with God for a little bit, then do a U-turn. And we sit back and say, man, are they dumb. And then you stop immediately. You stop. You're like, oh, my word. I, I don't trust God in every way. I don't listen to him in every way. I, I'm actually saying the same thing. I can't trust you, God. But God has never been unfaithful. He hasn't. Jesus was playing an old tune with a new instrument. The road is narrow, but the benefits are amazing. He also said this, the highway to hell, which is separation from God, leads to destruction. It's broad. It's easy to enter. Probably most popular because it's self-centered and self-focused. And we have all been fed, hey, you want to be happy. Do what pleases you. It doesn't matter how you treat others. Do what's best for you. How many times have you heard parents, I just want my kids to be happy? Now, maybe that just slipped out, but parents, you don't want to say that. You just don't. That's not how you want to parent. You don't. Jesus paints a picture here in these verses of accountability, that our choices actually have ramifications, and they result in either life or destruction. As I was studying through this text, I uh, came across a quote from John Stott, a British pastor. And I'd like, you to, I'd like to read to you what he has to say about these two verses. He says this, There are not many roads to heaven, but one. There are not many good religions, but only one. Man cannot come to God in any of the ways that man himself devises but only in the one way that God himself has provided. The contrast Jesus makes is not between religion and irreligion, or between higher religions and lower ones, nor is it a contrast between nice and upright people and vile and degraded ones. It is a contrast between divine revelation and human religion, between divine truth and human falsehood, Between trusting in God and trusting in self, it is a contrast between God's grace and man's works. You see, Jesus concludes his sermon by telling his disciples that they will have two choices in life, just two. And by the way, the rest of this sermon, we are going to dig into these choices. Okay, 
But as he finishes up, Jesus says there are two gates, a narrow and a wide. There are two ways, a narrow and a broad. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two groups, the few and the many. There are two kinds of trees, the good and the bad, which produce two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. There are two kinds of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, the sincere and the false. There are two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two foundations, the rock and the sand, and there are two houses that stand in the end, the secure and the insecure. Now, in all preaching, there must be a demand for a verdict, and Jesus makes his voice absolutely clear in this text. He is saying that people have two choices and you can choose one of two pathways. We can choose the narrow gate and the narrow road and come underneath the reign and the rule of the king. Or we can choose the wide road, the popular road, where we do what's best for us. The narrow road leads to life, and the wide road leads to destruction. And it's your choice and my choice today. You know, one of the things that Jesus was asked often, what do I need to do to be one of your disciples? What what do I need to do? In Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 34, the scriptures say that Jesus called out to the crowd. And he said this, if any of you want to be my disciple, you just ask. If any of you want to experience life, all right, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross. And you must follow me. That's the narrow road. And not many are going to travel on it. It's people who have recognized I can't be selfish anymore. That if I follow you, Jesus, I will suffer maybe in persecution, maybe in just lifestyle. But ultimately, a follower of Jesus follows. And that kills most of us. Because we like to lead. But you will never regret. You will never, ever regret following. So Jesus summarizes the distinct behavior and attitude expected of a follower or of a disciple. A genuine disciple is not found in a confession, but in a performance. Life is not found by following the crowd, but by a deliberate and costly decision of having a relationship with God and being obedient to his will. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? And we're going to be quiet.
And I'm going to ask each one of you to just talk to God. I'm not sure where you're all at. I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit is prompting or poking you about. But for the next few minutes, let's talk to God and ask him, Lord, what, what is it you want me to listen to you about? Maybe there's, there's someone you haven't been treated or treating very well. Maybe there's other things that God will bring to your mind. Maybe there's going to be some confession. But take a moment, just quiet, before I pray, and we continue our worship. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Father, you taught your disciples to pray like this. You taught us that as we obey you and we treat others the way you would have us treat others, that it's going to look more and more and more like your kingdom. God, we have been called to obey you. And you have empowered us and are sending us to all the corners of this world representing you as salt and light sharing good news introducing people to our Savior who redeems us and gives us life God would your kingdom come? Would it be more apparent? Would we treat others the way we would like to be treated? We love you, Lord. We are amazed by your grace. We can't believe the blessings you give us. We worship you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.